Bradley Tusk is a venture capitalist, political strategist, philanthropist, and writer. He's the CEO and co-founder of Tusk Ventures, the world's first venture capital fund that invests solely in early stage startups in highly regulated industries, the founder and CEO of political consulting firm Tusk Strategies, and the co-founder and chairman of the Ivory Gaming Acquisition Corp, a publicly traded company on the NASDAQ. Bradley's Family Foundation is funding and leading the national campaign to bring mobile voting to all U.S. elections. Tusk Philanthropies also runs and funds anti-hunger campaigns that have led to the creation of universal school breakfast programs in eight different states. Bradley's the author of The Fixer, My Adventures Saving Startups from Death by Politics, writes a column for Fast Company, hosts a podcast called Firewall about the intersection of tech and politics, and is the co-founder of the Gotham Book Prize. He's also an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School. Previously, Bradley served as campaign manager for Mike Bloomberg's 2009 mayoral race, as deputy governor of Illinois, overseeing the state's budget, operations, legislation, policy, and communications, as communications director for U.S. Senator Chuck Schumer, and as Uber's first political advisor. You can now find him working on Andrew Yang's mayoral race. Uh, This one was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoy Well, thank you so much again for doing this. I know you're a busy guy, so it uh, means a lot that you take the time, you know? Yeah, happy to. All right. So you are definitely a man of many hats, and we've got some ground to cover. But it seems right to start at the beginning in politics. You started off during undergrad, but you ended up as communications director for Chuck Schumer, special advisor, and then campaign manager for Michael Bloomberg, deputy governor of Illinois. You know, your your book makes it all sound a bit like the art of war, so to speak. Um, so I've got to ask, what were some of the biggest takeaways for you during that time? Yeah, I mean, there's really one overwhelming takeaway. It shapes a lot of what I do today, which is all policy outputs are the result of political inputs. I believe that 99% of politicians are desperately insecure, self-loathing people that can't live without the validation of holding office. And what that means is there's almost this hole in their psyche, and the only way to fill it, to feel okay about themselves, is with outside affirmation and validation and the perks and everything else. And you know, rather than expecting them to defy their human nature and do what we think is right and what they should do, We've got to, if we want them to, to result, you know, pass different kinds of laws and behave differently in office, we've got to give them different political incentives. So you're a Republican congressman from Florida and your district is gerrymandered like they pretty much all are and turn out in your primary is 12% and half that 12% are NRA members. You may know intellectually that it's insane that someone can walk in off the street and buy an AK-47, but you also <laughs> know that if you vote for an assault weapons ban, within the electorate that you have, um, you're going to lose your next election, which is why every time there's a school shooting, there's hopes and prayers and vigils and calls for change and nothing ever happens and nothing ever happens because we're asking that congressman to do what's not in his own political interest. Imagine instead of turn out in that primary were 40%, 50%. Um, if you just look at the polling, people overwhelmingly don't think that assault weapons should be readily available. And that same congressman, simply because all he wants to do is stay in office at any cost, now is voting for the assault weapon ban, again, because those are the inputs he's given. And I'm pretty sure the politicians were like, like this in the Greek Senate and the Roman Senate. I don't think it's our politicians particularly. I just think the human nature of someone who puts them through everything that it takes to run for office almost always means that they are highly deficient human beings and they're never, ever going to do anything to jeopardize their next election. So if you can accept that about them, then the question becomes, 
how do you change their incentives, right? And I, I learned that in office, right? And thinking about when making the case to whether it was to city council when I was at the parks department and I was 20, but to support funding for a new playground or, or in the US Senate or in Illinois or anywhere else is they're looking at everything from a political perspective. If you can show them why it is beneficial to them politically or harmful, they don't do what you want, that's how, that's how you win. And then I think for us, my first big test of that post-government was with Uber, where, you know, taxi industry historically had been major campaign contributors to city council members, state senators, all kinds of people in that world. So normally the political incentive would be to do what they wanted, right? But when we built Uber and we were getting these cease and desist letters from cities all over the country, we tapped into our customer base and we turned them into political advocates for our cause. And so you're a city councilman in Chicago, an alderman in Chicago, you got 7,000 votes to win your primary. We just sent 15,000 emails from constituents in your district who say, don't take this thing away from me, I want it. And guess what happened? You say, okay, right? And that's how we won in every single market in the US. And that's been the basis for everything else that I've done. So whether it's our venture capital fund and sort of how we get legalized the, the companies that we invest in, or the mobile voting project I do out of my foundation or anything else, that's the one key learning to me that has really been helpful. Definitely. I want to touch on the sort of take on politicians. I, I grew up in DC, so I've been surrounded by some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And my, my take on it basically over time has become, you know, there I'm sure are lots and lots of people with fantastic intentions that are going into politics to make a change. But I think, and I feel like you'd have a great perspective on this. I think the only way to survive in an atmosphere like that is to play the game, so to speak. And if you don't, you don't really make it. Is that like a fair assessment, yeah, you think? Well, I, I think part of it is that, is that our view of politicians is too simplistic, right? Which is they're either this saint-like figure like, say, Obama, or there's this, like, they're this complete devil like Trump um, and nothing in between. And the reality is they're right. human beings, right? They're very flawed human beings. So Obama, really good person for everything that I know of him personally and read and everything else. He has flaws, right? He was a kind of not super effective president. He had some corruption issues in Chicago. I still think he's one, of, you know, a great American. Donald Trump, one of the worst human beings that I've ever met, but he did do some good things. The Abraham Accords with Israel and those Gulf state countries was a great thing. And as, you know, if you went through, I'm sure almost anyone could find three, four or five other things that were worthwhile that if some democratic president did them, you'd be cheering for, right? So that's just, the reality is they're humans, they're flawed. So they're not coming in with the sole intention of being corrupt and, and totally cynical with no values at all. And they're also not you know, as pure as the driven snow. And the reason we have so many political scandals is they're all told they have to present themselves as perfect. And then when it emerges that they're human, all of a sudden it becomes a major scandal. But the reality is that's how people are. If you look at the whole Bill Gates controversy right now, it's, it's pretty instructive. Gates had kind of been built up into the, he's the one good billionaire. Right. He's the guy worth over $100 billion, but he gets it. He gives it all away. He's moral. He's good. Turns out he's human, right? And human beings have weird shit when it comes to sex. And so apparently there's Bill Gates. And like, that's okay, right? So I, I think fundamentally the, the, what we get wrong is we just have expectations about them that are so shallow and so one-sided that they're never going to meet them. So back to your timeline for a second. You realize you're pretty good at all of this and you start your own political strategy consultancy and you get a call from Uber. You touched on this just now. 
yeah. about the regulatory sort of hell they're going through at the time with the cabbies and the unions and the lawmakers and all that. And you find yourself on the other side of the fence in a way because you're fighting with Bill de Blasio and legislation limiting Uber's growth, but you win it for Uber by controlling the narrative. Is that pretty much right? I think so. I mean, I think basically, I remember I was sitting in, what airport was I at? I think I was in Dallas. And it's like raining, my flight's canceled. This is the opening of my book, actually, the first book. And Travis calls me and tells me what happened. And I kind of said, let me, you know, I'm thinking maybe, you know, he probably doesn't get the details of this right. Because, you know, someone breathes, someone who breathes, someone who breathes him. So let me look into it. And I look into it. I'm like, no, he, he got it right. You know, the mayor introduced it, the city council speakers on board, and most of the members are on board. And there's really no way to stop something at that point once all the powers that be uh, are there. And then I was sitting on the flight at home and kind of hit me like, okay, well, what if instead of the normal campaign about how you're going to hurt business and that's bad for the economy, what if you came at it from his left, right? De Blasio's whole thing was that he was Mr. Wolf, Mr. Progressive, Mr. Liberal. What if we said this plan that you're doing is actually racist and anti-immigrant and we put enough behind it that all of a sudden people got uncomfortable and started dropping off the bill? That's exactly what we did. So whether it's our paid advertising on TV or radio or mail or digital or lobbying or all the earned media and the events and social media on grassroots, it was all around this notion of you are hurting, you know, people of color who either drive for Uber because it's the best job that's available to them, or, you know, every black and Latino person in New York and probably everywhere else too has had the experience of, of needing a cab, raising their hand, and an empty cab goes right by because it doesn't pick them up because of the color of their skin. We were able to tap into that anger and frustration. And by setting that kind of kind of very counterintuitive narrative, council members started getting anxious and dropping off the bill one after the next after the next. And then finally the speaker realized they were dead and called to negotiate a, a truce. And we did. And that was it. Definitely. So to shift gears just for a second here, as someone who knows about that space where politics and startups intersect probably better than anyone. I'm curious about your thoughts on the situation with Basecamp and regulating culture in general. I think something like one third of their staff after they banned political yeah. discourse at work, I think maybe Coinbase had gotten caught up in this as well, but I'm sure you have a good idea of yeah. how those dynamics play out. I have, it's, look, it's hard. And this is one of the things I think is, startups tend to have lots of younger employees, but this is something that is probably true for the vast majority of employers, right? I, I deal with this too, which is, you know, there's a generational shift in how people think and the way that your generation thinks is different than the way my generation thinks. I think, by the way, this is probably always true. You know, when the 1960s came around, oh, I sure. had long hair, I mean, it freaked the, you know, totally freaked out the, the, the generation before that. But, you know, right now we have, I would say, overall, you know, good broad societal normative changes, right? That are resulting in people having more rights, being treated with more respect, you know, attempts to to have less structural discrimination and prejudice. Those are very good things. The application of it can sometimes be absurd, right? So you have people who just decide that their job and I even see this with my kids who go to a very progressive school in Manhattan and come home and call lots and lots of things racist that are not racist, right? <laughs> uh, but they're young and, you know, this is kind of what they're learning. The overall notion of like, hey, we, you know, want to treat everyone with respect and treat everyone as equals is absolutely right. The notion that, you know, if you fail a purity test because you don't agree with Rachel Maddow on every single thing is not right, right? So and, well, the thing I love the most about the University of Chicago is that they teach you how to think. 
right? And they teach you not to let others think for you. And I think the biggest problem of the left is not the underlying intentions. I think it's the fact that most people on the left don't think for themselves. And the goal is retweets and likes on Instagram and Twitter and things like that. And it's just to sort of, you know, do nothing to let anyone criticize, you know, the level of your purity. And at that point, you're not, you're not doing your own thinking, right? And so I do think, without sounding like, like an old guy here, that you have a generation right now that is, you know, so eager to show that they're pure and good and woke and everything else that often they kind of miss the forest for the trees. With all of that said, as much as I don't, love all elements of woke culture and, and in the New York City marriage race right now, I'm the one getting beat up by the kind of beholders of woke culture. I still think fundamentally it's a good shift for society. So now that we're talking about politics, I'd love to hear a little bit about mobile voting, which you're really big on. How do you help get the kind of turnout that that provides? Yep. while ensuring election security? This is like the big question, I'm sure. I mean, that's, that's the big question, right? So we've done 18 pilots so far across six different states, West Virginia, South Carolina, Utah, Washington, Oregon, Colorado. And in all 18 pilots, people either with uh, disabilities or deployed military were able to vote on their phone, either over the cloud or the blockchain, depending on the technology that was used. All 18 were independently audited, audited by the National Cybersecurity Center, all came back clean and turned out on average doubled. So we know that at least at small scale, you can have a secure way for people to vote on their phone um, and use that to really increase turnout, right? And I would argue that if we can't increase turnout, we're stuck with the extremes on both sides. And, and as a result, we eventually had, had towards not just a, a polarized functional government, but I don't think we remain as one country. And, you know, eventually enough discord, enough failure, and people say, let's do something different, right? Why am I, why am I still here? And so I think if, if you want to save the union, you've got to get more, government's got to be more effective and, and get more done. And that means that you've got to change the input so that there's a desire for consensus. So take like, Immigration, for example, the vast majority of people would agree with these two statements. One, we should not be deporting people who are here, even if they're undocumented. Two, we should not just have open borders where anyone can just walk in from wherever they want, right? But there's 15% on the right that says no one should be here under any circumstances and we should throw everyone out. There's 15% on the left that say any immigration laws are inherently racist and bad. And those 15% from each side should be ignored. The 70% consensus is what should be encapsulated in the law. but those 15% are the only ones who bother to vote in primaries. So as a result, they have all of the power. So I, I don't think that we can even be a functioning democracy if we don't solve this problem. And so while security is really important, uh, a lot of the people who oppose what I'm doing say, well, if you can guarantee that it's 100% perfect, then we can give it a shot. And my view is it's not gonna be 100% perfect, just like paper ballots have their challenges, the whole Bush Gore and eventually the Iraq war and a million mm -hmm. people died because of it for no reason. Voting machines certainly have their challenges, vote by mail has its challenges. You know, every system has its challenges. And I don't want mobile voting to have any more challenges than any other system. But fundamentally, you know, if, if we feel great about the integrity of every single vote and turnout is 10% and we are a completely broken dysfunctional democracy, I'm not really sure who that's benefiting. So sure. uh, the goal is how do we have something that can make it as easy as possible to vote with the highest level of security that's feasible. So after we finish those 18 pilots, we decided to build our own mobile voting technology simply because I felt like I had more resources to tackle the problem internally from within my foundation than the startups who were doing this. And so we are 
hired a bunch of different companies and cybersecurity experts. Um, we're doing a partnership with Berkeley. It was supposed to be the University of Chicago, and then you guys fucked it up and we switched it to Berkeley. <laughs> yeah. um, so didn't have the, the professor at Chicago left and the school couldn't like get its act together. And so, uh, so we, we shifted, unfortunately, because my, my preference is always to work with see if I can. And we're building our own technology and to end encrypted and over the blockchain. And I think that by, you know, some of our former critics not being involved in the process, we can build something people are more confident in. Um, but look, is it going to be perfect? No, it's going to improve over time, just as all cybersecurity will. But if we can transfer, if we can do all of our banking online and all of our healthcare online, we can vote on. To drill into that a little bit more, it seems like convincing regular people, let alone lawmakers, right, of that security is a whole different ballgame, though. Like, does that come naturally or is there a strategy well, that comes build, with it? To build a movement around it, right? And yeah. To me, you focus on millennials and Gen Z. You know, I've got someone now whose whole job is just to promote mobile voting on Twitch, Instagram, and TikTok. Wow. Um, my kids, you know, who are of that age, I need them to feel the same way about mobile voting they do about climate change right or that they do about racism and, and you know because if everyone from the ages of say 18 to 35 demand this thing it will happen right but you're only going to demand it if you really believe that you have a right to do it and if you really believe that you can't solve for example climate change absent having something like mobile voting you know mobile voting in and of itself is not the solution to any problem but it puts you in a position to solve every problem right because now you can govern based on consensus as opposed to based on extremism. So I, I don't think the curve of getting regular people to do it is actually all that hard, simply because one, I've already seen this now in the 18 elections we've done. And two, people, you know, digital penetration in the US is, is over 90% now, right? So pretty much everyone has a smartphone and people use it all day, every day. So the people are not the hard part. And in some ways, it's not even the regulators in the sense that, you know, if you're an election official, of course, you would like turn out to be 60% and not 12%. I mean, you intellectually understand why it's a problem. The problem is, there's a lot of people who benefit from the status quo, right? So whether you're the NRA on the right or the NEA on the left, low turnout primaries and gerrymandered districts is your bread and butter because, yeah, only 12% of people are voting. If you, you can constitute a third of that or a quarter of that or whatever it is, you become an all-powerful voting block that a politician will never defy. If turnout is now 60%, you know, then the teacher goes from being 25% of an electorate to 5% of an electorate, and they're a lot less powerful, right? So um, you're going to see both interest groups on both sides, unions, business groups, and then every individual politician who has no interest in changing things now because they've figured out how to succeed in the system all oppose it. And what they're going to say is we can't do it, it's not safe, because no one can actually say, I don't want to make it easier to vote, right? They know that you're not allowed to say that. So the reason that I'm spending all this money on building our mobile voting technology, and once we build it, we'll make it open source available free to any government that wants it, is to take away that excuse, right? If I have all these people who had been our critics saying, you know what, I thought that too, and then I worked on the construction of this new technology, and I think it's at least as secure as the other ways that we vote, then I think I take that narrative away from them. And then from there, if I've got that plus a generation of younger people demanding it, that's how we push it over the top. So today you spend 
a lot of your time investing in startups facing some of the same challenges you helped others overcome. We just talked about mm -hmm. mobile voting, but what are some examples of sure. maybe highly re highly regulated industries you're particularly optimistic about seeing change? Yeah, I'll give you four companies that I think are, are probably the best examples. So one is Roman. Roman's a, a men's health company. They started off by, by selling effectively Viagra overtaxed because their view is erectile dysfunction is often a sign of other health problems that are ignored. And, and because people are embarrassed about it, they don't ask for help. And so for them, we had to make prescription via tax legal because when it comes to at least asking for Viagra, every additional friction point, having to go see the doctor, having to see the doctor on video that you remove increases the uptake significantly, right? So we've been rewriting telemedicine rules and regulations in states all over the country so the companies like Roman, and now we have another half a dozen investments in the space can operate. Or transportation, you know, started off with Uber, but then also invested in Bird at their Series A. And then we've been running campaigns all over the U.S. to legalize electric scooters um, and had to pass legislation in, in Chicago, in New York, and a whole bunch of other places. And, you know, it, it's been a different process than Uber, and that's a little more cooperative a little less confrontational. But nonetheless, you have a lot of competing interests, and you have regulators in this case, but I think valid questions. Like, I think the notion of electric scooters is societally beneficial if it cuts down on car rides or makes a, a mass transit system more accessible. Like in New York, for example, it's true in Chicago too. You have people who live in regular neighborhoods that might be a 20-minute walk to the app, right? And, and if all of a sudden, and that means they don't use the subway. But if there was a bird or a lime or whatever and became a two-minute scooter ride, everything changes, right? So we know there's a societal value, but there's a lot of questions. Should you ride it on the street, on the sidewalk? Should there be a special lane? Should helmets be mandated or not? How do you do insurance? Well, who does charging? So it's really working through all of these different permutations with cities to figure out what, what makes the most sense. FanDuel, we came in when they got hit with, you know, cease and desist letters from like 40 odd states at the same time and ran campaigns in 23 different states to legalize daily fantasy sports betting. And now, of course, they're turning into to full-on sports betting. Illinois right now is in the middle of the process. And then the fourth one is Lemonade, which is an insurance company that sells property and casualty insurance to homeowners and renters online. And it's much cheaper and much easier. It's just a very different experience. You can't sell insurance without a license, but the state licensing agencies were reluctant to approve Lemonade, in part because it was a new model and in part because you know, there's this notion called regulatory capture, which is kind of Stockholm syndrome. You know, the regulators end up protecting the companies that they're regulating and protecting yeah, and, yeah. And their, their monopoly. And that's the case in the insurance world, too. And so we had to overcome all of that to be able to allow Lemonade to, to operate. And we were able to, to win them the right to do that in pretty much every state. So those are the kind of four highest profile examples that we have. So shifting gears for the last time here, you also do lots of work at Tusk Philanthropies, particularly in hunger programs that have gotten universal mm -hmm. school breakfast for kids in eight states, which is amazing. Why was that of particular importance to you? Yeah, so like to me, and maybe it's just because I've got a really short attention span, but like <laughs> the, the most fundamental thing you can help someone with is give them food. If someone is hungry and you can feed them, their life for that moment is just unquestionably better. Right. And so I started when I was a freshman in college working in soup kitchens. I was 
30 years ago now, and pretty much have always done it. Uh, sometimes, some years it's been Meals on Wheels, some years it's Soup Kitchens. I literally left the Soup Kitchen to come do this with you today. I do it every Thursday. And it's just something that really, you know, makes me feel feel pretty good. And and the reason I expanded it into these legislative pushes, what I realized is you have all these wonderful hunger organizations who are really good people, but not that, not that great at politics, in part because politics is a rough business, right? And by nature, by definition, almost, if you're the kind of person who dedicates yourself to feeding the hungry, some of the backhanded shit that is necessary in, in politics isn't, isn't going to come naturally to you. So I said, what if we put our expertise and our infrastructure and our money into helping these groups like Share Our Strength pass these bills? And so we've been doing that for the last five years now. Uh, in fact, last week was a really big moment for us because Governor Newsom in California included $150 million in new funding that's recurring for school breakfast and lunch. Another 1.8 million kids in California now will have access to regular meals. We are on the cusp of passing legislation in Vermont that will be the first truly universal school breakfast program in any state. Our bill in Maryland on hunger-free college campuses becomes law today. We've got bills pending right now in Massachusetts, Arizona, and Texas, and I feel good about passing them at least in Arizona and Texas. Um, so to me, it's just something that we can do that has a huge impact on the world that's up our alley and skill set and quite frankly, not that hard or expensive. So to wrap us up, this is sort of a big question. What mark do you want to leave behind? You know, you've done so much across so many yeah. industries. You've done so much good for real people that I'm curious about your, your life philosophy when it comes to it's, all this. It's a good question. And I, I'm learning now, I'm 47 to maybe stop trying to think about my legacy and the narrative around it so much, because what I've learned is um, I like doing a lot of things at once, right? Mm -hmm. So like right now, I run a venture capital fund, and when you run a venture capital fund, you have multiple, you're investigating multiple funds at the same time, you're raising new funds, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty complex. Yeah. I've got a political consulting firm that's, you know, in addition to a lot of other things, running Andrew Yang's campaign for mayor of New York City. Yeah. I've got a tele-religion uh, social media startup that I'm incubating. I'm the chairman of a publicly traded company that we did a SPAC for doing another SPAC. We do mobile voting and hunger out of the foundation. I'm opening up a bookstore and podcast studio on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. I've got my column for Bass Company, my podcast. I'm writing two new books. I teach at Columbia Jesus. Business School. Um, and the point is this, which is what I realize I like and I'm good at is coming up with ideas and putting them into play. And the yeah. reality is I'm not doing the data details on any of this, right? The only thing where I say I do all of it is, is the writing because I don't like anyone else writing for, for me. But putting that putting that aside, it's really, okay, how do I use this infrastructure that I've built over the last decade now to find ideas that really interest me? And it could be things that I think are really societally beneficial. It could be things that I just think are intellectually interesting. It could be things that I think are really lucrative and, and are worth it to then further the things that I care about. How do I build the right team to execute it? How do I give them enough direction and support and how, how to I use my own public profile to kind of move it along and then keep doing more and more stuff. So as a result, you know, I, I think on one hand, you know, should I be lucky enough to, let's say, have an obituary one day when I die? I think it'll be a confusing obituary to write because I do a lot of different shit. And I think, you know, but at the same time, that's what makes me happy. And so ultimately, you know, big picture, I think I've had an impact in the political world. I think I've had an impact in the tech world. You know, if mobile voting happens and if it works, that's probably the single single best thing I'll ever do. Having a, hopefully an impact in the philanthropic world. And, you know, I think what I'm best at is just doing everything. And then I'll let others, you know, decide how to talk about it. There are 
you know, look, you go online and there are profiles to me that you could read that make me sound to, to the point earlier about politicians, right? There, there are profiles that make me sound far better than I really am. There are profiles, including one on the front page of New York Times a couple of weeks ago that makes me sound exponentially worse than I think I really am. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of it depends on the agenda of the writer. If you're someone who cares about hunger, or you're a tech writer, or you believe in innovation, you're probably pretty friendly towards me. If your view is capitalism is evil and that your capital is evil and we have to defund the police and shut down every charter school, like the New York Times police these days, you're going to not like me at all. I'm not modulating my positions for anyone, right? I'm going to do what I think is interesting and meaningful. Some people will like it. Some people won't like it. What I have to learn is as long as I feel good about it, that's all that really matters. And then I get that intellectually, this, this emotional struggle that I have is how do I believe that kind of internally, right? Because we're all susceptible, like I was talking about politicians earlier, to the need for outside affirmation and validation and praise. And how do I get enough satisfaction and meaning out of all the things that I'm doing that whether I'm being praised to the hilt or getting the shit kicked out of me or more likely both at the same time, it doesn't really impact my self-esteem one way or the other. So, you know, to me, that's the, the doing stuff part I've got a pretty good handle on. The how do I derive all of my satisfaction just from the act of doing it, regardless of external perception, is something that I'm still trying to do, trying to work on. Woof. I think that's the one to leave it on, right? Oh, wow. yeah. That, I think we cover most of it. That was amazing. Thank you so cool. much for doing right, it. Appreciate you. Thanks. Take care. Yeah. Bye-bye.